and start talking more about God's standard for us and what is laid out there by Christ. Um, may not have been God's will <laughs> that I do that. I think that addressing the situation that we are dealing with here and how we ought to be looking at it is far more important. And indeed, it does include, certainly, God's standard for us in terms of our thinking, our attitude, our approach, how to deal with a circumstance that has occurred that affects us all because we are all one body. And if one member suffer or a piece of the body die, then we all suffer and to some degree die as well. But it would not be in Dale's thoughts or mind that we suffer. It would be in his thoughts and mind that we go on to perfection and go on to salvation and meet him in the kingdom of God. Now, some of those things will be said tomorrow, uh, but I want to address us as a church family today as opposed to comments that might be made for physical family because we have some different perspectives to look at and I think it's important for us to understand. Now, I know that when someone dies, and this has been so throughout my life in the church of over 50 years, We've had a lot of people die in that many decades in the church, some of whom I knew very well personally, some who I've sat by their bed almost daily when they were suffering with cancer or something of that nature. And to see them die, and questions come to our mind. Why? How could this happen? And we deal with those in different ways. We deal with them in Scripture. We deal with them in prayer. So, to ask the question, how could this happen, is a difficult question that we have always faced. And in times of trial, trouble, stress, and death, those questions are always asked, whether it be in the world or in the church or wherever it might be, because we always need to know why so that we can deal with something. I want to take it one step further today, because I don't think, why does someone die in general terms, is enough for you and me with what we know. It is easy to go to a funeral of someone you don't know very well or here and there about the world and find scriptures that say the righteous are taken away from the trouble to come. Isaiah 57, 1, we always use that, or nearly always in a funeral sermon. We go to Job 14.14 14 about if a man die, will he live again? And Job, knowing that his change would come, and said so in verse 15. There are familiar scriptures about the resurrection, familiar scriptures about the dead not living forever, but really being dead, and so on. And some of those may begin used tomorrow as well. But to answer that in general terms, I don't think for this audience, especially those sitting in the room today, is enough of an answer. We need to add a word to the question. How could this happen here? You see, we have come to feel 
that God has revealed some things to us, some new approaches, some new understanding that others do not have. We have looked at scriptures that show a commission that needs to be done in the end time in Haggai, Zechariah, other places. And we feel that God gave us a preparation job to do to help prepare for his remnant to gather. And that if we do our part, that God might even gather them here to be around us, near us, and among us, and that we could be a part of that. So, in a way, we've fallen into a trap, I think. Now, it's not wrong to recognize God has given you a job. is isn't recognize, wrong to recognize that that job is an important job that needs to be done. He has many jobs and has over the thousand of years that needed to be done. But we have to be careful in recognizing a job or a calling that God might have given, and then how we approach it, what our attitude is, and what our attitude might become. Now, in Worldwide... I have no doubt, and I think most people who were ever members of Worldwide for any length of time, recognize that Herbert Armstrong was called to do a very important job. Now, some have since dismissed that and don't think he did anything important. But I think most would say at some point that he was called to do a job, and a very important one. I see that job a little differently now than I used to. I think it was a job basically of calling many and out of that, few would be chosen, because that is the order of Scripture. Not just to preach the gospel around the world and the end would come, because it's been 20 years now since he quit preaching and the end hasn't come. And not only that, he didn't restore everything that needed to be restored. He had the basics of truth, and he understood a lot, and enough that a lot of people, I think, will have gained salvation as a result of acting on what he had to say. So God did use the man. But what happened to the church? Over a time, we began to feel that because we were a part of that work, we were special. Now, I will not go against what Peter said, where that we are a particular, chosen, redeemed people, and that is true. And in that sense, anyone who is called of God has been selected by God to be called, and no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So each of us who was called to be given the truth in this end-time age was specifically, individually, selected of God to have the mind opened. How many of us have tried to convince friends, relatives, people on the street of anything spiritual, and run into an absolute brick wall. You cannot open anyone's mind, nor can I. Herbert Armstrong could. God the Father, John 6:44, had to call to open that mind, or it would never have understood. The carnal mind is enmity against God and does not understand spiritual things. Cannot. Will not. Now, the problem we had in Worldwide is not that we recognized that God was doing something special through Herbert Armstrong and the church. 
The problem is we got puffed up and proud of it and began to pat ourselves on the back and think that we were something special ourselves. What God was doing was special. And what God, Christ living in us, was doing was something special. But we have to balance that with the fact that we are weak, deceitful, desperately wicked, you know, with, well, really on balance. I don't, have, I don't really have many problems, do you? I just have a few. Beyond lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, selfishness, idolatry, you know, things like that, bitterness, clamor, enmity, gossip, uh, beyond a few things like that, I'm good. You know, we have a special job. We have a special calling. But we, being the weak and noble, the, the weak and noble of the world, how did I misquote that? The weak and base of the world, are not in and of ourselves special. We are only special when we are doing God's Word, following His will. And the minute we begin to think we are special, which is what we came to, we become Revelation 3, you know the story of the Laodiceans who thought they had everything they needed, but in God's assessment were totally the opposite, naked, blind, deaf, and so on. And I fear that to one degree or another, we may have been falling into that trap ourselves here. Because we do have certain knowledge, it's easy to get puffed up. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? Knowledge puffs up. It is so easy to become prideful ourselves. And I'm not going to use this sermon as a soapbox to tell us how bad we are. I just want us to recognize a little bit that we have to be very careful. We want to obey God. We want to serve Him. We want to please Him. We want to fulfill whatever job, whatever commitment He gives us to do. And... Sometimes it's easy to get a bit sidetracked. And I think one of the expressions that we have used and one of the examples that we have used has been one that may be causing us a little trouble today. And that is, I have quoted myself many times, and some of you have, maybe all of you at one time or another, upon seeing the experiences of Israel when they came out of Egypt, what did they begin to do? Almost immediately, in spite of incredible miracles, including the complete destruction of the Egyptian Empire, the complete destruction at the Red Sea of Pharaoh and his armies, in spite of seeing the Red Sea part and then walk through on dry land, they got thirsty and almost immediately said, you brought us out here to die. Now, we have looked at that and said, God showed us we needed to go out into a wilderness area, out into the desert, and God did not bring us out here to die. And using that, we have thought maybe none of us would die. We took it perhaps one step too far. Now, you can't convince me that we all came out here to die. And I'm not going to take on the attitude that woe is us, we're all out here to die, that Israel had. What they were actually saying is, 
whoever this God is that Moses is talking about really doesn't love us, really doesn't care about us, and he had an ulterior motive, and that is to bring us out here to die. It was all about attitude, wasn't it? What it was all about. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe God. So they took on the attitude, you brought us all out here to die. Now, in being sure that we did not have that attitude, we adopted that expression. And I don't think that that in itself is a bad thing. For I do not believe God brought us all out here to die. I don't think that was his purpose. I don't think that was his motive. And I don't think that's what's going to happen. Does that mean that none of us could die? Well, let's take a reality check. Obviously, that cannot be because one of us just did. So, how do we deal with this? Let me turn this over a little bit. Look at the other side of the coin. Something perhaps we might tend to overlook. It's something I know we know. But let's put it in this context. And I'm going to make a statement. Brethren, I came out here to die. I did. Didn't you? What did Paul say? I die daily. I am crucified with Christ daily. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. And his mind was that he came to die for you and me. Now, God called us out here for two reasons. He called us out here, number one, that we might die mentally, emotionally, spiritually in that sense, that the old self would go away. Now, we committed ourselves to death at baptism, and by the laying on of hands received God's Holy Spirit, His power, His might, His comfort, His strength, Christ in us, that we might live and live for God. But we found in time, whether it was within minutes or hours or days, weeks or months, depending on your proclivity for sin, we found that the commitment we made was not total. That there was still an awful lot of carnality and humanness and selfishness dwelling within us. And we have been struggling and fighting against that ever since to come to have the attitude and approach of Jesus Christ. We worked ourselves into a very self-righteous attitude and worldwide to the point we thought we were in need of nothing. We had it all. The call will come. We'll go to safety. We'll go into the kingdom of God. Blah, blah, blah. You know the story. Now, God scattered the church and shook us up so that we might get over that attitude. Now, we can look at most groups, and it's easy to judge. It's easy to be critical. And we have assessed much of what has happened since then is that people moved over one pew and went right back to sleep. Now, if we all slumbered and slept, and we all got shaken awake drowsily, wouldn't we all tend to go back to sleep? 
wouldn't we all begin to think that, well, I'm here and this is special, what we're doing is important and special, and begin to feel we have need of nothing. In attitude, maybe we'll say, I have a lot to overcome, maybe we're working at it, but do we have the motivation we need to become what we need to be? Do we really die daily? Are we really working hard every day to think exactly as Christ thought and to bring every thought into his captivity? That's the standard he set for us. Very, very difficult to measure up to. It's a hard, rough, rugged, ruddy road. Not easy, not broad. It's hard. But that's what he has us here to do. If I look at myself... I have to say, I could be doing it a whole lot more. If I look at myself, I could say, have I turned to God with my whole heart? Have I healed all the breaches in the wall in my relationship with God and with all of you? No, I have a long, long way to go. Well, how hard am I working at it? Am I working hard enough? I don't guess you could assess ever really that you are. But God is looking for a wholeheartedness in us. And maybe God is using the death of Dale White as an object lesson for us all. If that be the case, I don't want us to miss it. Dale White, most of you never knew in his full mind. Those few who were here, who knew him ten years ago. I don't know exactly when I met him, eight, nine years ago, something like that. Might have been ten when I first went to CGG. I met a man who was very giving, very serving, very loving, very positive, very helpful, very generous, would do anything for anyone that needed it. Some few of you, I, as I look around the audience, knew him in Chicoa, Georgia, and knew him when his mind was still working better, and you knew a happy, mentally healthy, spiritually healthy man. One of the, I would have to say, not to compare to others, but I'd have to say one of the finest human beings I've met. Out of how many? I don't know. I, you know, I'm just saying that I would have to assess Dale White as a man who was committed to serving God and God's people. And if I searched back through my mind and all of those whom I've seen die and heard about dying, and I asked the hard question, would that person be in the kingdom of God, the first resurrection? Some cases I'd shake my head and say, well, you know, I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I saw what I thought might have been some conversion there, and I'm not sure I, that was conversion at all. Maybe we're looking at the second resurrection for that one. Maybe they weren't converted at all. Now, I might make a good or a bad judgment on that because God is ultimately the judge. But just from a human standpoint, well, some people who have died that I've known, I would have to scratch my head and say, I really don't know. And maybe I don't know about Dale White either. But what I did know of him, what I did see of him, in my mind, there is no question 
as I stand here today, that Dale White will be in the first resurrection. There's just no doubt in my mind, having known him as I did. Now, some of you have known him over the past three, four, five, six years since we've come here, and he was still fairly uh, functional mentally a few years ago in Kanab. It was, you know, it was obvious that there were problems that were arising, whether it was dementia or Alzheimer's or, or something else, hard to determine, but you could see some deterioration, but if you went to his house, he was happy, and he'd pick up his guitar, he'd play for you. He'd give you all the food he had. You just had to go get it off the cabinet or the table. He was cheerful. He was happy. He was smiling. He was glad to see you. He was hospitable. And anything that needed done, Dale would have done it. And you saw that even here. You saw glimpses of him even as his mind deteriorated. The very last Sabbath he was here last week, he didn't look good at all. And we had to get a lounger for him to lay back somewhat, to try to make him somewhat comfortable. But after most of us were all gone, and I wasn't even here either, I heard about it later, Dale, having difficulty breathing, got up and did his level best to straighten all the chairs. What little mind there was left there, there was still the attitude, the approach, the desire to help, to serve, to deacon to the end. And he did. That attitude, that mind, is a tremendous example for all of us. Now, why would God let someone like him die? Why not one of us owly ones? You know, why do the good ones have to die? <laughs> why couldn't it be some of us that cause problems? I don't know of any problems they'll ever cause. I saw him help and do a lot of good. Well, this isn't intended to be a memorial today for him, but I don't want to miss any lesson that God might have for us here. He was part of this body. He's part of us. And if part of us is hurting, then we need to find out why that hurt is there and do anything we can about it. And the life of service that Dale had would carry over. And if he could say so clearly, he would say, anything you can learn from my death would make it worth it to me. I know that was his attitude. I know that spiritually he was still struggling. Over the last two or three months, there were times after a sermon that Dale had been moved emotionally in. He could still understand a certain amount, but he had trouble expressing himself. After a sermon on several occasions that particularly moved him, it wasn't every week by any means, but occasionally, he'd come back and he'd look at me, and he couldn't express himself, he couldn't say, so he'd just give me a hug. And that's how he communicated how he felt about what had been said. So that attitude was there to the very end. All right, I think we've partially answered how could this happen here. Maybe we don't fully have the attitudes we need and need to be working there, and maybe God chose such a one as Dale to be an example of that, who even in his debility struggled so hard 
to serve and to give and to sacrifice his life for others. What better example could you have for us who are yet remaining and living to live up to? Now, I think part of our situation is this. We have read the scriptures which say that there is a time here in the end coming when there will be healings. We've read Acts 2, I mean, uh, yeah, Acts 2 and, and Joel 2 is what I meant. We've seen that in, the end, that in the end time that dreams would be dreamed and miracles would happen. And that was done at Acts 2, Pentecost, when God sent His Spirit to the church, His power. And in John 5, or Acts 5.15, it says, even the shadow of Peter passing over people healed them. God gave such incredible power at that point. Most of those people were unbelievers. And Peter himself had been carnal as a doorpost a day or two previous. And yet God showed His power, His drama. And this thing at the end has to be to God's glory and God's drama. Something God shows. But in reading those promises, and indeed those promises are there, and those events, I firmly believe, or God's Word means nothing, will happen. They will happen. And we are in an interim time between when God has turned His face from the church, including us, while we do get some answers sometimes for some things, He has not shown great drama. And as I pointed out before, if He gave as great a punishment in a dramatic fashion as in Ananias and Sapphira for sin, I'm not sure we'd be ready for that any more than we're ready for great drama in terms of healing and blessing. We have to be humble, meek, and ready, or it will puff us up and make us worthless and fill us with pride in a way that will be wrong. And God can't use people that are full of pride. He resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So we face a difficult situation. We see the things that God is going to do. We're trying hard to do those things that would make us a part of it, And yet at the same time, we fight our stupid human nature that wants us to think we're something because all human beings would like to think they're important or need to be heard or have certain talents or whatever we might dream up. So it's always fighting that fight to serve God, please Him, serve each other, and not let our right right hand know what our left hand is doing, not keep score, and try to just be a help. Constant struggle of a battle that any Christian in any age has ever had to face. Now I want to relate a little bit about what happened Wednesday. Uh, This is, in a way, from a personal standpoint, but I think that it has some bearing, because the more I think about all that transpired on Wednesday, has God's hand in it in a way that I believe undeniable. You know, Barbara has been fighting this situation now for years, as Dale has died before her eyes, day by day. Now, being the trooper she is, she wanted to take care of her husband if he died to the very last day, 
She wanted to be able to serve and give to her husband everything he needed, all his care, because she loved him. That was in her mind, and that's a good thing. She also was faced with a difficulty that each and every one of us faces, a bridge we all have to cross, and one that we have all grappled with. And that is, dear God, thy will be done so long as it matches mine. We do pray often, not my will, but your will be done, but I sure hope you do it my way. Don't we? Haven't we? I certainly have. Because what I wanted or thought I wanted might not always have been according to what God had in mind. So you have this struggle. And what it is really is a commitment. A total commitment to doing what God wants, what His will is, in spite of anything you might feel. That's what we all have to come to. And in terms of this physical situation, Barbara had that bridge to cross. She very much believed that God would heal Dale. She wanted it to happen. She prayed about it thousands of times. I imagine most of us here have hardly let a day go by in the last year or two or three that we haven't prayed about Dale White. I mean, if you go in to pray, automatically the trials and troubles Dale was facing would come to mind. We might have missed some days here and there where we had our mind on something else, but I imagine most of us, most of the time, mention Dale at some time in our prayer most days. And we, along with Barbara, had the same attitude, Thy will be done, but please heal it. Thy will be done as long as it matches mine. At some point, you have to turn loose the branch. At some point, you have to say, Thy will be done, period. Whatever the cost to me, that's what Daniel faced. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced. Your will be done. If it means death to me, if it means death to a loved one, your will be done with no strings attached. Now, Barbara intimated to me that in the last day or two of his life, she finally crossed that bridge and said, Father, your will be done. Now, I think that was a part of this whole thing. Dale White did not die, and somebody had to call him up on his cell phone and say, Father, did you realize Dale's in trouble down here? Please, hey, hey, look over here. God knew what was happening to Dale White seven, eight, ten years ago when it first began to slightly appear. He has followed this. He has numbered the hairs of his head ever since. If a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, God not notice it, and neither did Dale White. God was very aware, very attuned, and he was micromanaging this whole thing. He was micromanaging Barbara, 
to bring her across the bridge to the full commitment to his will that she needed to have. And he was working with us the same way. Now, as to the events of the day itself, most of the time when I need to get hold of Barbara, I dial late 107 and her phone rings and she answers it. Most of the time. Now, yesterday, or not, no, but Wednesday, I wanted to talk to Barbara. I called her Wednesday morning. No answer. She'd gone for a walk. Nelson called and told me his car had blown up, so I went to try to rescue him. Forget the car, just him. <laughs> Came back, wanted to call Barbara again. Phone's busy. Can't get hold of Barbara. Now, why did I want to get hold of Barbara? Because we were having a meeting at 7 o'clock Wednesday night, and I had, and many of you had, come to realize, and I think Barbara had as well, that she was reaching the end of her rope physically, mentally, emotionally, and just from the standpoint of handling Dale, she had gotten to the point, she couldn't do it anymore. But remember what I said earlier, she wanted to serve her husband, take care of him till his last breath. That was in her heart and mind. Now, we were preparing to have a meeting that very night to line people up and schedule them to come spend evening hours to Dale sit while she could get some sleep and rest. Also, to pair us men up in pairs so that we could go in and handle his weight and bulk so that he could be properly bathed and taken care of. It was more than Barbara. He had gotten debilitated enough to the point that Barbara simply could not do it on her own. Now, she had had this desire to take care of her husband herself. And there's nothing wrong with that. But she had come to the point it couldn't be done. So the reason I wanted to see Barbara Wednesday was to set up for the meeting to be sure that we did everything according to her schedule and what would fit her and be good for her. And then Robin showed up to bring her some brownies. And we sat and talked about it. And we talked about that, about, you know, what would be best and what time of the day would be best to have people come in to help you with Dale. And then we both left. So she had had some support. She had had an offer of help. And up to that point, she had, in spite of everything, been able to handle it. But she'd reached a point she simply couldn't. So it reached a sea change in that sense in how Dale could be taken care of. And a change was about to be made. And she had support right there, and other people had been by that day. But I couldn't get a hold of her earlier in the day. It was only a toward evening and just before the meeting. I said, man, i got to hurry and get over there and talk to Barbara before the meeting, see what her desires are. So Rob and I had barely gotten out the door. I started riding back to my house, and somebody stopped me and needed to talk for a minute, and it turned into five or whatever. And then I roared on home. Marla comes running out of the house. Barbara needs you. I thought, I just left there. What's wrong? So I wheeled around, headed back down there. Well, there were two men who were going to help her bathe Dale, and she had told them, well, as soon as Daryl leaves... Come on in. 
So they were watching. So as Robin and I went out the front door, those two men came in the back door. Now, Barbara had been down there with Dale, taking care of him day and night, most of the time by herself, except for people who came to visit and so on. By herself. As it turned out, as I see it, maybe God made it where I couldn't get there. If I'd have been there at 10 in the morning, I'd have probably been off doing something else, up, you know, about the time that this happened, and couldn't have been there to support her up to the moment, and Robin. And those guys were sitting there waiting for us to leave. So just as we left, they came in, got him on the bed, and were there when the heart attack began to occur. So she had support right up to the moment and during it and has ever since. Now, I see God's hand in that personally. God knew he was going to allow him to die. He knew maybe there were things we needed to learn from it. But he took care of it in the best possible way to make it as easy, if that's the right word, as could be under the circumstances. And she was able to take care of her husband right up until his death. Herself, for the most part, with very little outside help. She finished the job. I see God's hand in that. So it's not that God is not conscious of us. He's aware. He's not turned his face and smiled and blessed us as we see those scriptures yet. He gives us just enough help to get us by. And even if he allows us to suffer a great loss, he makes it as easy for us as he can because he loves us. Now, I want to go to an overall view of man's history on this earth so that we might, in those terms, understand over a 6,000-year period this situation in light of what God has done in the past and will do in the future, because I think it helps us get our perspective. It's so easy for us to look at here and now and think that we are a microcosm of ourselves and that this... How do I understand what's happening to me right now? You know, that's the way we are with our trials and our troubles and our tribulations. Why is this happening to me right now? And it's hard sometimes to see the overview of everything that God has done, is doing, and will do. And to examine that a bit, I think, should help us be able to handle the present trial, present difficulty. It's easy to pass judgment on one another. It's easy to be critical. It's easy to say so-and-so wasn't doing their job. I think somebody even I heard accused me of not praying for Dale or anointing him, and they apparently felt that they'd seen the whole thing. Not at all. They hadn't been there when I got there, weren't there till after I had been there, left, and came back. Somebody doesn't know me very well if they don't think I would pray and anoint someone. And it isn't a real good feeling to feel someone dying right under your hands as you have your hands on their head and praying for them. 
isn't a very good feeling at all. But thy will be done. Now, there were some spectacular healings in the Bible, and there have been some spectacular deaths in the Bible. People underage, people not yet appointed to die at that age normally. They lived to 69 and a half years of age, almost to 70, that God said more or less is a lifespan now. Wasn't very far from it. It's easy for us to judge whether somebody goes to the doctors, whether they go to God, to be critical of them, to try to get them to go this way or that way, whatever we think is best. There was a man blind from birth in John 9. I don't have time to go there. And he was blind all his life. So his disciples asked Christ, who sent, him or his parents or who, that he would be blind? He says, nobody sinned. This was done. This man has been blind all his life. Just so that an example of God and who Jesus Christ was could be shown. Now that, in a way, sounds kind of harsh and cruel and hard, doesn't it? That here a, a baby would be born blind and his parents would go through, oh my, what, what, what's wrong? What, what happened? We have a blind baby. And then the baby himself would miss out on so much of life because of being blind. And spend his whole life in a dark world for one example of who the Messiah was. Now, great joy and relief when he, for the first time in life, I don't know how old he was, 30, 40, 50, I don't know how old he was. First time in his life, the one he saw was the Messiah. Didn't know he was the Messiah, but that's what he saw. God works in mysterious ways as wonders to perform. And he may be working in some mysterious ways as wonders to perform with us right now. Now, you may remember the story where of Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, where Paul had basically given up on Epaphroditus, who was in the ministry, and said he was sick unto death, and he... I guess, basically expected him to die. But he said, out of God's mercy, he said he healed him, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. It would have been very debilitating, very difficult for Paul if Epaphroditus died. He was very close to him. God had mercy and healed. And then Epaphroditus was of use for Paul to send to another congregation to help serve the people's needs. You remember the story where Paul preached till midnight, and a young man, Eutychus, became drowsy, was up in the balcony, dropped off to sleep, as we have all done in church. Sleeping in church, is that the, that must be the unpardonable sin. But we've all done it. If somebody preached till midnight, more of us would do it more often. But he fell down. Hit the ground, hard ground, I suppose, dead. 
And Paul rushed over, said, it's all right, he'll have his life in him. The boy was resurrected right on the spot. Incredible story. And then, <laughs> then Paul preached till dawn. Well, nobody's going to go to sleep after somebody smacks the ground and gets resurrected. You know, you're not going to sleep anyway, I don't suppose. Then you look at Paul's life himself. He had apparently an eye affliction. And let's, let me turn back to some of that. I have time to turn to some of these scriptures without maybe running out of time today. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. Uh, about 10, I think I want. Yeah, let's start there. 2 Corinthians 10. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. Now, Paul was weak in physical presence. He wrote powerful letters, but he had a debility. Uh, talks about how he wrote in large letters back in, I think it's Philippians or somewhere there. I think he had difficulty seeing. And he must have had a spindly, 100-pound weakling body as well. Because in presence, people despised him. Because of how he looked and his physical abilities, whatever they might have been. He doesn't spell it out in so many words, but it seems apparent. So, he said, if I were there, I'd look weak and base to you, but I'm going to write strongly. I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, strongholds of sin, idols, temples that we have in our minds, and so on, casting down imaginations reasonings, dreams, or whatever, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I quoted that earlier. That is the standard. Verse 8, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the eternal has given us for edification and not for your destruction, God didn't give authority and office in the church for ruining of people, but for their edification, that they might receive eternal life. I should not be ashamed, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters, for his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech contemptible. No wonder Eutychus went to sleep by midnight. Paul's speech, they say, was contemptible. He was not a powerful speaker at all. People joked about his speaking. They laughed at him. They derided it. That was his reputation. He is repeating the reputation that he had from people about himself. That's what he's doing here. Now, Let's move on to chapter 12. He talks about some visions and revelations he had from God, and he didn't want to brag. I won't go through all that. 
Verse 5, speaking of the things that he had gone through, he said, Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory. Of God who had given him the dreams and revelations, he gloried in him, but not in himself. But in my infirmities. Paul had infirmities? Wow. He was an apostle. One of the closest people there was to God. One of the ones God himself personally was working with very closely, one whom Christ spent three and a half years, or three years in the desert, teaching individually. And he had infirmities. Well, some would say he must have been disobeying God, and he wasn't the kind of Christian he ought to have been, or he wouldn't have been having trouble. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he sees me to be, or that he hears of me. But don't puff me up, he said. Yes, I did have these things. Yes, I do have this knowledge, but I know it's from God. It's doesn't anything to do with me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, and that is a natural, carnal, human tendency, to take that which God has given that is important, and lay it on ourselves as if we were important. Now, isn't that what I addressed at the beginning of this dissertation? It isn't we that are important. It's what God is doing in us that is important. So, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord three times, that it might depart from me. He had formally gone to God three times and asked God to take this difficulty from him. Now, here's the man who raised Eutychus from the dead. Here's the man who had seen Epaphroditus healed in spite of what he thought might happen. And yet he sought, besought God three times, and God's answer was, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He had come to submit himself completely to God's will. He began by praying... God in heaven, thy will be done so long as it meets my will and I get this eye problem or whatever it was, heat. Now, after three times, Christ said, Paul, I don't want to hear about it anymore. Don't get anointed anymore. Accept the fact that you're going to be this way, buddy. Because otherwise, you're going to get so puffed up, you won't be worth anything to me. So on purpose, God did not heal. He had a plan and a purpose, a higher overall use for Paul than Paul fully grasped. And God understood that Paul needed to be under pressure and to have infirmity and to have difficulty in order to do what God had for him to do. 
And he told him, my grapes are sufficient. Forget about it. You got it, you're going to keep it. Now Paul finally crossed that bridge and wholly committed himself to God's will with no strings attached. Any more or less says that. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. This was a physical infirmity that made him weak, that made him look bad, that affected perhaps his speech and his eyesight, and he wasn't much to look at. And he said, I'll glory in that. How many of us glory in our physical infirmities? We pray and we pray and we whine and we groan for God to heal us. But sometimes we forget that through much tribulation we're to enter the kingdom of God. And that many are the afflictions of the righteous, Psalm 34, 19. And that many of these things that we suffer... And even death can be that we have eternal life and that those around us might be spurred on toward eternal life. Because that was job, Paul's job, to become a part of God's kingdom himself and to influence and spur others on to the same goal. God may have used Dale White very powerfully here, if we can but see the lesson and let it spur us on rather than discourage us. Most gladly, therefore, in the verse 5, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. We may have some, some to go there to take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, when people debrided his character and so on, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. It's going through these things that help turn us to God. Now, what has God done? He has put incredible pressure on the church, scattered it, for what purpose? Just because he enjoys making a mess? No. Because he wants us to become strong spiritually. He wants the pressure to cause us to turn to him. Paul reiterated another place. About, about five times he had been given 39 stripes of the Jews. Three times shipwrecked, I think it was. Three times cast in prison. Uh, all kinds of things that it happened to Paul. I don't remember all of them at the moment. He went through a great deal of physical and emotional pain to do the job God had given him to do. Hebrews 4, verse 2. Hebrews 4, verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as to them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. We must believe. 
And we must walk by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And we go through whatever we must go through in life to come to the point that we can walk in faith. Now somebody says, well, so-and-so died, must not have had any faith. Is not having faith a prerequisite to dying? I think not. I think I can prove that. You see, Dale and Barbara settled in their minds decades ago that David was correct when he said in Psalm 104 that God is our healer. And they believed that. And they believed in James 5 that if we pray the prayer of faith, God will heal. And they saw their children healed as I saw mine and as my parents saw me and others healed. We saw a lot of that. But when we got puffed up, we got impressed with ourselves, most of that stopped. And when he scattered the church, even more of it stopped. And now we get an intervention here and there. We get a little help. Sometimes it almost seems like we're ignored. I'd like to solve that. I'd like to stop that. I'd like for not God to have his head turned from us anymore, as he says is the case. He says it won't be for a little while. I want to see it come back and turn on us with smiling and Barbara and I and you had hoped that Dale would live until that time came. So we've sort of limped from holy day to holy day hoping this would be the time. And I think sometimes that can be a ditch too. I mean, we should look forward in hope, and yet at the same time, we need to be doing those things that would turn God's face from us, uh, to us and turning to Him wholeheartedly as opposed to just hoping against hope that it'll be this next feast. It will come at some time. But if we spend all our time wishing instead of fishing, we won't be ready when it does come. So instead of limping along hoping in hope, we need to be preparing ourselves so that we can be a part of it. We cannot lose that perspective. Now, I'm not here today to say we've all been entirely that way or to be accusing. I don't mean that at all. What I am saying is let's be sure we have our perspective right. That we are doing those things that are necessary so that we might be included. That's living up to the, what our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and others have done. That's part of the very end-time work, is turn our hearts to our Father in heaven and our hearts to our fathers of the past, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and so on. We're here to support one another. We're here to help each other's faith, to help us be strong. And that's my job today, is to help us look to God in faith, not look at physical surroundings and say, this is hard, we can't do this. As long as Peter kept his eyes on Christ, the man could literally walk on water. 
When he looked at the waves, the conditions, and the wind, he sank. It's that simple. This is a walk of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. You know, it's hard to walk by faith. Healing is one of the first examples that will come to mind. When we commit ourselves to God in faith to be healed, I have seen people healed immediately. I have seen people begin to mend from that hour. I have seen people where it was delayed and came later on. And I've seen people who died not being physically healed in this life. Now, was the one who healed immediately more righteous and walking in faith more than the one who might have died? And the answer is not necessarily so. We're going to see in a minute that walking in faith is the key. Not what ultimately happens to you as a human being, but it's the walk that counts. That's what's important. Now, Dale and Barbara walked in faith for decades in belief that God is our healer. And they saw it through. And even without Dale having enough mind left to understand and know at the end, she continued to walk in faith for herself and him without compromising her beliefs. Now, if someone goes against their conscience in a situation like this and compromises what they have believed and believed to be true, to them it becomes sin. There were, from time to time, people who tried to talk her and them out of their faith, out of their belief, and cause them to go to someone other than God. That is very dangerous ground to walk. Thankfully, she had the character, the Spirit of God, strong enough that she held to her belief, regardless of what anyone tried to convince her of. Barbara White, brethren, walked in faith. Her husband died in faith. And I believe they pleased God. And so do it. Now, if you do not have that kind of belief, that strength and that faith, it is something you should be working toward. Should we not, in every aspect of life, be walking toward trusting in God and believing Him? I don't think anybody could argue with that principle. Now, if we're not there, it cannot be legislated. Some tried to get Barbara to go to the doctors when she felt that is not what she should do before God, and they were wrong in so doing. Yet, on the other hand, if someone does not have that strong a belief in that character and they want to go to medical science, we cannot legislate faith. How do you give that to someone? You can't do it. So when someone asks me to take them to the hospital, whether I agree or disagree, I'll say, sure, jump in the car, let's go. 
I will go to a hospital to visit someone who is there. Now, I'm not saying they're right or wrong by going. There are times, I think, personally, it's not wrong to go there. When someone fell out of a tree at the feast, I motored them down to the hospital to get the arm set. There should be people trained to do some things. The fine line is, where's the line? What should people be trained to do and what is God's prerogative? That is where the rub comes. And each of us will have a different view of that. So where you may be in your state of understanding, your state of growth, your state of faith, is between you and God. It is my job to support your faith at whatever level it is. And you to support mine. That is our job. To help, to support, to strengthen one another. Barbara did not compromise her belief. She did not compromise her character. She did what she should have done. And was strong. And is a powerful example for you and for me. Now, I want to finish this up. Just some other thoughts here, but I want to go to Hebrews. Let's go to, oh my, let's do the whole book. Maybe we better start in 10. Chapter 10, verse 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second, speaking of the covenant with Christ that we have made through baptism. By the which will, the will of God, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We aren't important, but his sacrifice given for us is very important, and it dwells in us. And every priest stands daily serving and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They were still, some of them, the Jews, and this is written to the Jews in the church. We're spiritual Jews today, so it's to us. They were still giving animal sacrifices, which couldn't take away sin, but Jesus Christ did. And it was by His stripes that we are healed, 1 Peter 2.21. So He's going to make a new covenant with us in our hearts, verse 16, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. I cannot go to God on my goodness, on my righteousness, because it's his filthy rags. But I can go boldly in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Messiah lived and died for me and for you. I can go there and be bold because of what he did. By a new and living way, this is a way of life, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We don't need an evil, guilty conscience about things we might have done 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. We need faith that that has been washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. That when we were baptized, 
symbolically in that water, our sins washed away. They no longer exist, moved, removed as far as east is from west. You shouldn't pine about the past or feel guilty about it. You sinned. Christ forgave it. Forget about it. Don't go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And if you do, call on the blood of Christ in boldness that you might be forgiven yet again today. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke to love and to good works, forsaking not the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, and do we see that coming. Let's skip on down. This is all important, but I don't have much time. Verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. Walk by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. We are not of them who draw back to perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. We have to walk by faith. That's what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. That is what we must do. Now, faith is the assurance, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It isn't faith if you see the answer. It isn't faith if you know how it's going to turn out. It's only faith if you do God's will and follow His way, not knowing how it will end. That's what faith is. Now, some people say, I have faith to be healed. And they give God a minute, an hour, a week, a month. Some might give Him a year. And then say, well, God must not heal. I'll go find somebody that can. Now, when they make that compromise, they are no longer walking by faith. Maybe they never did, because they were not committed in that particular subject doing according to these scriptures. Tells us what to do when we're sick. Tells us what the, who, who our healer is. If you put all the scriptures together on the subject, it becomes very clear. Walking by faith is hard when we see physical debility and infirmity, as Paul saw in himself. But he was willing to submit to God and walk that way. Now, what did Christ say about the woman that had the issue of blood and went to many physicians, but was not healed, but rather grew worse? Of course, somebody today would say, well, that's just because the doctors weren't very good back then. They are today. Yeah, they'll give you piles and piles of pills that all mixed together will kill you. Let's not get into that. Sometimes they do help people live a little longer on this earth and perhaps live a little better. Won't say they can't. But is that the way that we need to be thinking and the way that we need to ultimately to be walking? Should we depend more and more on them and less and less on God, or should we be going the other direction and depending more and more on God and less and less on them? See, it's a growth process. And because somebody isn't here doesn't mean they aren't somewhere in the process, but at least let's recognize what the process is and understand that in principle, it's better to depend more and more on God and less and less on man. 
I don't think anyone could have an argument with that, whether we're talking about healing or something else. In anything, it's better to trust more and more in God and less and less in man and in self. So this, this is something that covers any subject. What about tithing? Now, if you put all the Scriptures together, honestly, in the Bible, on tithing, there is no question that it is God's way that He has always done and will continue to do. That is abundantly clear if you put all the Scriptures together. But it's hard to walk by faith because that's what tithing is. And if you don't see God's answer within a minute or a week or a month or a year, then you say, that doesn't work. I'll find another solution. It's the same as healing. This is about faith, not healing, not about tithing. It's about attitude. Will I walk in faith doing what God says and commit myself entirely to Him, or will I reserve something back to myself? And if God doesn't answer in the amount of time that I have proscribed, I will do something different. What about all the Scriptures in the Bible? And you can put a lot of principles together which say we are not to become unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Now, it's applied specifically to marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. It applies to business and a lot of other things. But it is specifically about marriage there. So we have people in the church who say, I will not marry outside the church. They grow up believing that. Maybe they've been taught that all their lives. And they look around and they look at the mess in the church and they don't see God providing them a mate. So they'll give God a day, a week, a month, a year, five years, ten years. Why haven't you provided me a night yet? I don't know if I'm out. It's the same thing with healing and with tithing, finding a mate. Do we walk by faith? Are we committed to do what God says to do for this life? Or at what point do we say, that must not work? God can heal. God can pour open the windows of blessing with tithing. He's looking at attitude. And he's looking at the long term. He can provide a mate. Now, what do we do in the meantime? We obey God, no matter what the subject. I've only mentioned three. There are many more. We can do it God's way and trust him that all things work together for good for those who love God and keep his commandments. Obey him. Serve him. Or we can find our own solutions. Now, I should think that our goal but we would be to submit ourselves to God and let Him give His solution in His time. Now, meantime, what do we do? Well, God's on the clock now. He's got to heal me by a certain time. Meantime, I'll eat junk, sugar, white flour, fast foods, garbage... And he'll heal me. Or, in the interim, do we study the Scriptures and find out that we're to be taking care of our bodies? Do we read Daniel and show that in, that in the end time, we're going to have a Babylonian culture that will feed us kings' dainies that are bad for us? We figure, well, God's going to heal me someday, so it don't make any difference what I do. Yes, it does. You have to walk by faith, taking care of your body the best you possibly can educate yourself to do, 
In the interim, you faithfully tithe, and you don't sit there and wait for God with a big bucket in hand saying He'll pour millions on me because I tithe for a month or a year or two. You go ahead and work for a living, as God has said man should do, and you continue to obey God. And when your attitude is right and the time is right, He will bless you in the way that He said He would or He's a liar. But you can't have the attitude of you're on the clock, God, you better get it done, otherwise I'm just going to quit this. And I'll find reasons in the Scriptures why I can't. I'll ignore certain ones. Whatever. Now, God hasn't provided you a mate yet. And that He told you, you shall not marry outside the church. So, do we have a bad attitude and say, God, you're on the clock. When are you going to give me that mate? Or, do we work on getting over being a lazy slob? Do we work on becoming merciful and patient? Do we work on getting over being a male chauvinist pig or a female chauvinist sow? Or whatever our particular problem might be. So that we become a qualified mate. Now, you may be in a bad attitude and blaming God and blaming man and everybody you can find to blame for why you're not married and can't find a mate. Did you ever consider God might be protecting you from them? I mean, them from you, I meant. See, God loves them too. You may not be marriageable. You may have things that need fixed. And God's going to bring a fine, and you wouldn't want any other kind, lovable, generous, mate to you. He loves them too. He's not going to give them to you if you're not worth having. So, don't put God on the clock. Spend your time getting ready. And maybe if you maintain the right attitude and walk in faith, trusting that God has your best interest in mind, and you get yourself ready, He'll send you one in due course. That is walking in faith, whether it takes five years, ten years, fifteen, twenty, forty, fifty years. You walk in faith doing God's work. That's what counts. Now let's ooh, get into chapter 11 of Hebrews a little heavier. You, you can't see the answer. You can't see the mate and say, God, that's the one I want. You can't say, I want to be healed today. Man, I feel bad today. Heal me today. You walk forward in faith, trusting God with your life. And it's hard for human beings to trust God with their health and their wealth. They'll find a way to worm out of it. And trust something else. For by faith the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. We believe in faith when we see what God has done, and this is echoed in Romans 1, that there is a God based on the creation we see around us that had to have been designed by a bigger mind than ours. What's our big mind doing to this world? Destroying it, polluting it, very quickly. So we see the things that are made, but we don't see God, do we? But we know there's a God, not because we can see Him, but because of what He's done and what He promises He will do. So you, you see that there is a God by what has been done, 
and you look forward to seeing God and seeing his promises fulfilled because of what has gone on before. And you walk toward him in faith that he has your best interests in mind. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Righteous Abel, I think Jude says. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, speaks. Abel's been dead thousands of years, but he's talking to you and me today through this word. Now, Abel obeyed God. Abel offered the sacrifices that were pleasing to God. Now, his brother Cain became very bitter, very jealous, very envious of what Abel had and Abel's relationship with God and God's blessing of Abel. So, Abel was walking by faith doing what God said. Cain had decided there was a better way or just as good a way that he had dreamed of. So, out of envy and jealousy, he killed his brother. Now, Abel was walking in faith. And what happened? He died way before his time. Thousands, I mean, hundreds of years probably before he normally would have died, Abel met a disastrous death at the hands of his brother. See what envy and jealousy does? Now, who's going to be in the kingdom of God, Cain or Abel? Abel's listed among the faithful and says at the end of this chapter he'll be in the kingdom of God. His life was truncated early on this earth. Big whoop. Big deal. So what? He's going to live forever. Didn't Christ say, if you seek to save your life, you lose it? And if you seek to lose it, you'll save it? If you lose it in service to God and man, you'll live eternally. If you seek to save your life on this earth, be it through medical or money, or whatever way, you'll lose it eternally. Very plain. Abel will be in the kingdom of God. He walked by faith. And you know what he did? He died in faith. Because he died early did not mean he did not have faith. He walked in faith. That God had his best interests in mind. And you know what God's best interest was for Abel? It was not that he lived another two or three or four hundred years on this earth with a brother that hated him, but that his life be truncated early and that he be in the kingdom of God forever, something that Cain may never attain to. Maybe, maybe not. Abel's ticket is punched. He's in. But he died early. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. At that time, it was not found because God had moved him. For before his movement or move, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, he died eventually, but he didn't die there in that circumstance before those people. God had something else in mind for him. But he pleased God in the things that he did. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is. That's only the first step, and that's not a big deal, because even the demons fear and tremble and know that God exists. They don't follow through with the second part. Just believing there's a God doesn't get you any apples. 
You've got to believe that there is a God and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. What does He tell us to do here at this end time? By the mouth of all the prophets, diligently, wholeheartedly seek Him and obey Him. What He tells us to do. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. He didn't see any waters coming up, didn't see any rain clouds. Spent 120 years, wasn't it? Building an ark, building a boat. No rain in sight, building a boat, probably up on high ground. He walked by faith, even though he could see no answer. He could have done the Bill Cosby routine that you've all heard. What do you want to build a boat out here for? You know. No, that's what God said. Just do it. That's what he did. To the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing where he was headed. God said, Abraham, go. Where am I going? What am I going to do when I get there? No, he just went. No answers. That's what God wants done? I'm going to do it. How many people on earth have ever had that attitude? Abraham is what? The father of the faithful. The father of those who walk by faith. By faith he sojourned in the land of promises in a land as in a strange case. He didn't know it was a promised land. Strange to him. He didn't live, hadn't lived there before. He looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. We read some scriptures that told us, leave the city, go dwell in the field, there you'll be delivered. Gather yourselves before the financial crash comes. We've done it. That is walking in faith. Simply taking what God says and doing it. Now, our motivations might be of question. Are we doing it to serve, to help, to give, to prepare something that God wants done? Or are we doing it to save our hides? And all the varying degrees between those two things. Motivation we have to work on. But stepping out and doing what God says when you can't see the answer is what counts. He uses Sarah as an example. She quit doing that a long time ago and then had a baby. He quit doing that a long time ago and had a baby. Verse 13 is very important for us today. These all died in faith. You can have faith, walk by faith, and die. Can't you? These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them far off, a promise of them, a glimmer of them, and were persuaded of themselves, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We're strangers, ambassadors, pilgrims. We don't belong with this world. We don't belong with this society. We don't belong with this age. John makes it very clear. So does Christ. We're not to be friends of the world. We're not to associate with and be friends of the world. We are called out to be separate, to be different, and to be an example to the world. To be a light to the world. That doesn't mean you have to rub shoulders with the world and socialize with the world to be a light. No, you obey God, you walk in faith, you do what God says, and they will see the light and it will hurt their eyes and they will hate you. They will not buddy up to you, they will hate you. 
Bad influences good. Good does not influence bad. And we will not influence the world to good. The two witnesses will present a testimony to the world for three and a half years of a good example of how it ought to be. And there will be people living in a place of safety that they can point to and say, these people are obeying God. They are blessed beyond belief. Why don't you do what they do? And they will be killed for it. That simple. Their good will not rub off on the bad of the world. Don't kid yourself. Verse 16, But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Those who are willing to walk God's way in spite of the way things look are having a city prepared for them, and indeed they are part of that city as we understand and know today. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall your seed be called. God had promised him a son, said that this son will produce seed as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heavens. And then God told him, go kill your son. And God said it without a smile on his face. Abraham packed his son up, took him out, tied him down, about ready to slice his throat. God said, wait, now I know, Abraham, you will do anything I say. That's the whole point, to walk in faith doing whatever God says, no matter how bad it might seem to turn out. Or indeed, turn out, as in Abel's case, and others. He figured God was able to raise him up in a resurrection, even from the dead. So he was going to kill him. Now, God hasn't asked any of us to slice our son's throat. But he has allowed a lot of people to die. He disappointed to all men once to die. After that, the resurrection. Then he goes on and shows Isaacs and Jacobs and Josephs and Moses' examples. Goes on down to some that weren't quite as honorable, perhaps, as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses. So I'll skip over the biggies and get down to some of these others that you and I might relate to better. Okay? By faith, verse 31, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believe not. Now put yourself in Rahab's position. You have these two spies that come in, and you're hiding them, and you know that if those in the city find out you have those two men in your quarters, they'll kill them, and they'll kill you. You know that. You know the society you live in. And yet they said, if you'll get us out of here safely, when we come back, you will not be killed. They were men of God. She believed them. Rahab, the whore, is going to be in the kingdom of God. She's listed among the faithful in Hebrews 11. I don't know that she joined Israel and lived a godly life the rest of the time or not. Maybe she did. After she saw her city die around her, the story is not there. But she must have done something whereby God saw that she could be in the first resurrection. So it doesn't make any difference how bad you and I think we've been. It can be forgiven. Why can't we forgive like God does anyway? She perished not with them that believed not. What, sh- what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson. What about Samson? There's a man who had some problems. 
He went against teaching. He married a Philistine woman. Shouldn't have done it. Later on, he consorted with Delilah. Had a relationship with her he should not have had. And yet, he killed a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of an ass. That doesn't look like a lethal weapon to me. Jawbone of an ass? One of you would stand over here and another one of us or me tried to kill you with that jawbone. It's not a very heavy bone to start with. Man, you'd have to beat thunder out of somebody to get them to die with just a jawbone of a donkey. It wasn't the jawbone. It was the strength behind it. Those thousand Philistines plus probably more were trying to kill Samson. And he slew them all, great big piles of them around him, with that one bone. Because of the power God gave him. I suppose he probably repented after Delilah betrayed him. And they put him to grinding grain like an ox. And that was a woman's job. Very degrading to a man and to Samson. But his hair grew. And the Philistines had the temple of Dagon. And one day he realized his strength was back because his hair had grown out. And he marched out of the granary and down to the Philistine temple of Dagon and ripped the pillars right out from under it and killed thousands of them as his last act of defiance against false gods and idolatry. And he is going to be in the kingdom of God in spite of his problems. David's another one we look at who had serious problems in his life. He's going to be king of all Israel in the kingdom of God because he walked in faith. He obeyed God. Sometimes he got sidetracked. Then he repented as in Psalm 51. And God received him back into his good graces. And David marched on. David died under not too good of circumstances either. Partly perhaps because of some of the sins that he enjoyed. And he enjoyed killing too much. He died at 70 years of age, not an old man particularly. You'd think somebody that is as much favor with God as David did would have lived longer, perhaps. But he was diseased in some ways. So he just shook. Have you ever had the flu or something, and no matter how many covers you piled on, you just shook because you were cold all over? They even brought in a young lady to warm him. And under any other circumstances, that would have been a mistake with David. But at that time, he got no heat. And he didn't touch her. She was just there to warn him. He walked with God. He mentions Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, Daniel, quenched the violence of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again, Elijah. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Isaiah apparently was sawed asunder, not across his middle, but from the crotch up. Sounds like fun. Isaiah was one of the tenderest, most sensitive writers in the Bible. Wonderful to read Isaiah. And he died one of the most horrible deaths you can die, being sawed in asunder alive. But he walked in faith. And God had Isaiah's best interests in mind. And Isaiah will be in the kingdom of God. 
Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yes, bonds and imprisonment. Paul did himself. They were stoned. They were sawed in half, speaking of Isaiah, perhaps. Were tempted, slain with a sword. Just being tempted sometimes is a huge thing, isn't it? Tempted to do something you know you should not do. Man, that's a battle. But you walk in faith, and as much as your body screams for what you want to do, you don't do it because God said don't. And that is one of the toughest things we will ever face, is not doing something we want to do. It's hard. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth because they were fugitives, sought after, people trying to kill them. But these are people who are going to be in the kingdom of God. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, through walking and doing what God said, no matter what the consequences on this earth and this physical life might be, poverty, ill health, death, torture, didn't matter. They did what God said no matter what. God having provided, they received not the promise, went through all that and died and received not the promise. Why didn't they receive the promise? God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all those people are waiting in the grave. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Rahab. For you and me to become what we ought to be. And they set that life of hardship, went through everything that you can possibly imagine a human being going through. Mental agony, physical agony, that they might set an example for us at the end that we might be able to do the same thing. Now let's tie this all together very quickly. We've talked mostly Old Testament here about all those things that those people went through that are written down for examples of what, to us upon whom the ends of the world have come. Look quickly at the New Testament. Did the apostles live to a ripe old age? They resurrected the dead. Their shadow passing over people healed them. Most of them died of crucifixion or other terrible deaths. John lived perhaps and died a natural death, but it doesn't mean they didn't throw him in a, in a barrel of boiling oil, which didn't hurt him the same way Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. What about Stephen? Was God unaware of Stephen? Stephen was pr probably preaching one of the most powerful sermons ever preached on this earth. And in the face of great opposition and absolute hatred, he drilled it into them. Whether they liked it or not, and they picked up stones and threw them and killed him. And God watched it all and did not intervene. Stephen was a man who walked in faith, believing that if he did what God had told him to do and he had commissioned him to preach the truth, 
He was going to do it come hell or high water. And he died young doing it. But he's going to be in the kingdom of God. He walked by faith, doing what God said, no matter the cost. Brethren, that's what you and I have to come to do. We have to live by every word of God, no matter what man or Satan might do to us, including torture and death. <laughs> that is our object. Now, we know from Daniel 8, Daniel 11, the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, that many are going to be persecuted and martyred at the end time. So we've gone from history in the Old Testament to history in the New Testament to the history at the end of the New Testament, the end of the age, and we know that all these things we just read about in Hebrews 11 and more will happen to some of us at the end. Now, let's answer more fully the question, how could this happen here? What is the commission at the end? It is to build the temple of God after it has been desecrated and destroyed. The, far, the latter temple has to be built. Who will do it? God is calling Joshua and Zerubbabel and the remnant of the faithful from around the earth. He's going to stir them to come, and they're going to build the temple. Now, this will come in opposition to people who are trying to build a millennium. A new world order under one global government which we see happening before our very eyes this very day. And God is going to start a very small movement while these people are starting a very large movement. Now, do any of those people have problems? They all do. You see, Joshua is depicted as one who was a brand, a stick, in the fire, on fire, burning up. Going to the lake of fire, if you will. Isaiah, for, uh, I forget the exact place. Isaiah says we are all brands that will be plucked out of the fire. Joshua, being the high priest, is an example that is given of that because as high priest, he represents all the people, has to cleanse himself first. Now, it tells Joshua there in Zechariah 3 that he has promised crowns, promised power, but... He must diligently obey, otherwise that brand will be thrown back in the fire. Now, as a leader, all those who listen must also clean themselves up and diligently be, obey, lest they also be thrown back in the fire. Weren't we all headed for the fire at some point in our lives? Yes. So Joshua has diligent obedience to definitely consider if he is to fulfill the job God gave him to do. What about Zerubbabel, the other leader at the end time in the church? Did he have problems? What did Paul say about himself? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver him into this body of sin and death? He had problems. So did Peter, so James, so John, all of us. So Zerubbabel is told, you started the temple, you will finish it implying that he got sidetracked and went off some other direction for a while. So even the leadership at the end has problems. Wow. How could that happen here? 
Easy. The leaders of the end time church have problems. I suspect that everybody else along with them has problems too, wouldn't you? That's the way it's always been. Now, they will use people who are walking in faith in spite of conditions, persecution, martyrdom, whatever, will be taken to a place of safety where they cannot be touched, and they will be the example that those two men can go out and preach to the rest of the world of here's what happens if you obey the true God, not the beast and the false prophet. You will be blessed. And these people are going to have eternal life, and you're going to die if you don't repent. The message never changes. All the prophets said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, more or less. John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, started their ministry preaching the exact same message. Peter, James, and Paul preached the exact same message. Herbert Armstrong preached in this day and age the same message, and the same message must be preached now. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But we must walk by faith, because without faith it is impossible to please Him. And we may have infirmities and trials, troubles, tribulations, sicknesses, illnesses, and we may even die. How could it happen here? What happens to Zerubbabel and Joshua? They get done with all their testimony against the world. They walk by faith going out every day to stick it in the nose of the new world order. And everybody on earth worships them except those few who are left in place of safety because the rest of God's people will have been martyred because they wouldn't work on the Sabbath or whatever. And then they will die having walked in faith be killed by people who hate them passionately because they are the only thing standing between them and their so-called millennium on earth. If it can happen to them at that point, it can happen to anyone anywhere because through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. If in this life only, brethren, we have hope, We are of all men most miserable. We, when the world is going that way, are told to go this way. They're going down a broad slide that is easy to follow. And we are told to go uphill on a very narrow, ruddy road and face trouble, trial, tribulation, persecution, sickness, ill health, poverty, live in a cave, live in sheepskin, and get sawed from the bottom up. And you will have eternal life. Now, if you believe that, walk in faith. And you will have eternal life. Walk by sight, and you'll sink like Peter in the water. Just because we die early, just because we die here or there, does not mean we are not walking by faith. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. It can happen here. It can happen again. We're all vulnerable. So we sit in fear and say, I hope it gets here before I die. Or do we walk in faith 
obeying every word of God and preparing ourselves so that whether it does or whether it doesn't, we'll be in the first resurrection. That's what counts. All the worrying, all the scurrying will not save you. Walking in faith in Jesus Christ and his promises will.